This is The Squad Room, a podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the 21st season of SVU. If you have not watched episode 2101, I'm going to make you a star. We advise you to do so before listening. Hello and welcome to the inaugural episode of The Squad Room. I'm your host, Anthony Roman, a diehard fan of all things Law & Order. I'm born and raised in New York and have been lucky enough to work behind the scenes at SVU for the past decade. I've helped with music, locations, and really anything to do with the show and New York City. Now I get to share this journey with all of you every week right here on The Squad Room. We'll talk with writers, cast, crew, discussing the episode and getting the inside track on how it came to life. Today we're going to go on set to the trailer and sit down with the great Mariska Hargitay and returning showrunner extraordinaire Warren Light. We'll talk a bit about the history of SVU and what's to come in season 21. Then we'll knock on the dressing room door of Peter Scanavino and discuss what's happening in Sonny Carisi's life at the moment. Finally, we'll head down to the writer's room and sit with writer-producer Peter Blauner and talk about what it takes to create an adversary like Sir Tobias Moore. All this on The Squad Room, brought to you by Wolf Entertainment and NBC. Mirshka and Warren, welcome to the squad room. This is our first episode. Uh, Before we talk about the season premiere, I thought we should address this incredible milestone. Season 21, you're now the longest running live action drama in television history, which is pretty incredible. And I was wondering what you thought was the reason for this continued success and why people connect so much with your character, Olivia Benson. I think that there are, is uh, so many reasons that people uh, that this show resonates with people. I think that the first thing is is that we deal with subject matter that has historically been swept under the carpet. I think that one of the th- my favorite things about the show is that we shine a light on issues that that are historically icky and people are understandably afraid of. And I think that we uh, deal responsibly and uh, with the subject matter. And we deal with very delicate subject matter with care and with compassion and uh, again, responsibly and keep the show survivor centric. And, you know, obviously Dick Wolf has um, an eye for um, respecting his audience, hiring the best talent that he can find in every department. And, you know, right. he has maintained the uh, production value and got us the best writers. And, you know, I feel like here I am, season 21, and I've been on like five different shows, even though it's the same show because the show has continued to reinvent itself and stay current. And it's been such a pleasure having uh, Warren come on because each both times, the first time and now this time, he always takes it to the next level. I'll I'll say right out that the reason we're in season 21 is because Mariska has been here for 21 years. Uh, um, And and when I came in, it was right after Chris had left and uh, people were very nervous. The two of them had held the show on their shoulders for the first 12 years. And I was, I mean, I probably should have been more nervous, but I looked at Mariska, I thought, we're going to be fine. Uh, and I didn't want to just give her a new partner and try to give someone equal weight. I didn't think Chris could be replaced. 
I, th I thought that was a, a not a good way to go. It's different than a show about bank robbers or serial killers. People watch the show, as Mariska just said, it is a path to survivorship for them. And, I've, and, and people come up to me all the time, and Mariska gets it way more often than I do, and they, they just they start crying or they say, you know, I wish I had had a detective like Olivia. Um, now a captain like Olivia, by the way. But, uh, but they wish that their case had been handled this way. And, and in, in truth, this is how cases should be handled. The, the victim uh, should be heard, should be believed. Uh, rape kits should be investigated. We, we, it's an idealized notion. And in, in, in real life, uh, and Mariska knows the percentages, the, the number of people who get away with rape is, is so depressing and horrifying. On our show, usually they don't. Occasionally they beat the rap, but we explain why. And we, the show, I think, does educate people. Uh, I was always, I was very happy by that one survey that said viewers of our show had a far better understanding of what no means than viewers of other shows. And I thought, okay, yeah. we're doing something yeah. right. It's truly educational. And, and, to, and, and to answer your question about also why the character of Olivia Benson resonates so much, I remember when I first read the script, and obviously... 20 years ago, here was uh, a detective uh, in, you know, primarily a female detective, primarily in a man's world. And I went through um, a training uh, uh, to become a rape crisis advocate and as part of my research. And I learned so many tools and techniques and it was so helpful and it really influenced me so much in how I was going to play the character. And, and the way I did was a combination of this badass uh, detective that will stop at nothing and with like a rape crisis counselor, somebody that really was knew how to talk to survivors, knew how to sort of go seamlessly be, between those two worlds. And I wanted to bring as much empathy and compassion to the role as possible. And I think, you know, we need as much empathy and compassion in the, in the world as possible, but bringing it to this job instead of, instead of going at these crimes in such a linear way, understanding that survivors of sexual assault, domestic violence, child abuse needed to be dealt with in a different way with that much more compassion, that much more respect, that much more empathy. And uh, also, I think an interesting, uh, and I don't know how, how consciously it was done, but the decision to make Olivia the product of a rape, uh, I think defines the character. It's 21 years later, and we're still, when we plot, we still talk about what does Olivia need, what does Olivia want. And what she ultimately wants is to fix what happened to her mother, and she can't do that. That's so That was brilliant. That, that, that was, Dick wrote the pilot, and... Uh, that was one of my favorite parts of the character because it was so human and so specific and so, you know, it, it told it told the whole story. And her mother's character never really recovered, I think, right? That's never. My, my sense of it. And so there's this open wound that can't be healed by Olivia. There's nothing Olivia can do for her mother, but that need to, to that, heal. That was her was, entire motivation is to right the wrong that was done to her mother. Every day she's writing the, what was done to her mother. That is her motivation and her, the fire, the, the, the flame that burns. So that seems to work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely working. Warren, I want to talk 
I've worked with you on Lights Out, and I know you're on In Treatment and Criminal Intent. And Mariska has been talking a lot about the responsibility the show has and, and the respect the show has for its audience. Um, did it take you a while to adjust to that? Yeah, no, I, I, uh, my first TV show was Criminal Intent, brilliant detective Gorin solving crimes that no one really had the intelligence to commit. But, he, but there was no, you know, you'd, you'd write an episode and it was, it was a little puzzle. It was an intricate criminal, it was a put the pieces together and then go backwards and solve the crime kind of a thing. I tried as often as I could to get to uh, emotional moments in the scripts, but the relationship to that audience, they liked watching Vincent lean and be, but, but they, nobody was watching that show for emotional catharsis. Uh, no one was watching Lights Out. I tried to tell a family drama. I was very proud of it. I got here and it took me very little time to realize that, uh, this show's relationship to its fans, Mariska's relationship to the fans, the, the Venn diagram of Mariska and Olivia in terms of what the fans, the fans see that as one circle in a way. And they, there's an obligation on our part. Uh, it's, it, they watch everything and it's, it's life or death for some of them. It's about, it is a catharsis for them or it's about, they also have a need or a want to see justice done if only for 42 minutes on Thursday night at 10, you know, and, and, you have to think about who's watching the show. You have to think about the victims in the show or the survivors in the show as real people. I, I make every character that I can a real, even if it's a three-liner, person's real and they have a reason for whatever they're doing. But our survivors in the show, the, the actors who come in to play it, I really need them to understand what they've gone through and how the system is hurting them or helping them. Uh, and you just... I also feel we have an obligation. We just started the writer's room in, after Memorial Day, and Mershka came by a few times. We had 15 speakers in five weeks. We had defense wow. attorneys, prosecutors, forensic analysts, DNA experts, experts on trauma-informed in interviews, because I, I want to get everything right. I, I think when you're doing like a caper flick, eh, you know, but, but here I want and I, and actually what was interesting to me three years later, the way uh, interviews with with survivors are con uh, get conducted has changed. There's a whole new approach to it called the trauma-informed interview. That wasn't out there really three years ago. Um, sometimes it's called a FETI interview, but that became a, a, a real focus for us in the first few episodes of this season. How do we stay on? I want our writing team to be as on top of the newest trends in, in police work in this field as, as the cops, as the best cops are. And we had some of the best cops in the nation come talk to us. We had Mike Osgood who ran the sex victims division of NYPD for eight years. He came in and talked for eight hours. I swear he didn't take a breath or a sip of water. He, <laughs> he, he wanted us to know what it's like and how, how it's done. Uh, and he, he said, and, and I've heard this from, we have other detectives who talk to us. Tim Hardiman comes in. One of the things they see is out in the field, young detectives, young cops, don't get much training. When they go to police academy, they get a lot more self-defense training than they do how do you deal with a victim of an assault. And a couple of people have come in and said, look, I want you guys to get it right because a lot of cops, all their first few years on the job, all they know is what they've seen from your show. So that was another thing I had never realized, that we're, for better or worse, uh, informing law enforcement, young law enforcement people, look, when somebody comes in, if their story's a little off, that's normal. They're not lying. 
they're trying to piece together what happened and their brain shut down during the assault or their frontal lobe shut down the assault. It's, this is what they have. It's truly educational for so many people. I mean, that's one of that. Like Lamorne said, one of the things, you know, that for the law enforcement hasn't historically understand is what what trauma does to the brain. And our show is educating people. So they're, you know, people historically, oh, the, the, the story was inconsistent. And so they dismiss them. But the fact is, Trauma affects the brain a certain way and makes it scattered and fragmented and and it only comes back and with certain timing and so that's been really helpful for 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 everyone but also for law enforcement and so it's been so uh, and similarly it, discussing rape kits and how thousands of rape kits were taken from survivors and stacked on shelves in police departments all over the country that's a crusade Mariska and Olivia. Uh, led and you're beginning to see, I think, major change in that world. But but for years, that's also told you how much or how little uh, law enforcement thought about victims, how how unimportant it was. They put them through this after a trauma, after an assault, get put through a brutal exam, and then nobody even bothered to check the, the DNA that was gathered. But the show yeah. really started a conversation, and that's the thing I'm so grateful about is that as I said in the beginning, so many people are hesitant or afraid to talk about sexual violence, but the fact that it's on television every week and all of a sudden it's water cooler conversation starts a conversation about sexual assault, domestic violence. I cannot tell you how many people have come to me on the street saying, your show changed my life. You are the reason that I went to the police. You are the reason that I have my life back because so many survivors live in shame, in isolation. And, you know, we, we wrap it up for them in a nice, you know, in 42 minutes. And our show says, you are not alone and you can get help. And here's what it looks like. I know we've been talking a lot about how educational the show can be. But I'm sure it's important that it's entertaining as well. When you get a new script, is, are you looking for a healthy balance between the two? Uh, first of all, the show must be entertaining. It cannot be didactic. It can't feel like a documentary. So after everything we've just been saying, if the show doesn't make you wonder what's going to happen next, and if the show, if you're not invested in the characters, show's off the air. So, so we have to. Um, or if they can't act. Yeah, well, that the, I can't uh, look. We're working on that. <laughs> we're working hard on that. But the, the so you try and keep it moving, kind of pace and and surprises and all of that, and you want people to connect to the characters and uh, as much as the issues. I always I get mad. Sometimes the first drafts will come in with, especially with new writers, and they'll be very arch, and they'll be uh, Mariska's character. Olivia will be like, "Damn it." get that scumbag off the streets now. And I'm, I'm just like, she doesn't have to say that anymore. But th there's this a learning curve about how to write for this show so that you care about these characters and you wonder about them. And so from one week, one of the things when I said, look, I want to start running some storylines from one episode to the next. I want to give Olivia a baby. And nobody needs, right now, nobody needs to watch the show this Thursday night at 10 because they can catch up to it at any time. But if they're wondering, did Olivia get the baby this week? Right. They don't want to be the one tomorrow at work who's at the water cooler and, and getting sp the show spoiled for them. So you need I need something for the, the viewers who are coming in week after week after week to keep them engaged and also to keep my actors engaged. Nobody wants to just do a reset as if they're in some parallel universe week after week. I'm, well, whatever happened last week didn't affect me. Here I am again. It, it, that's, the, that's an old approach to network television. That's the sitcom approach, right? Every week... 
we start fresh. And I, I don't buy that. But that has been, I think, like the miracle of the show is how we reinvest and freshen it year after year. Right. And we do. And we do. Yeah. Yeah, no, you totally do. On that note, I was speaking of freshening and reinventing. What do you think of this character, Sir Toby Moore, that they came up with? I love the character, especially in light of what's going on in the world right now. This is an important, important story to tell. There's the ability of powerful men to avoid punishment and manipulate the system and get powerful friends to do favors for them. It, it, it's it's, it's so timely. It's so horrifying. It's so real. And it's it just it's a frightening uh, place that we are in the world right now. And so it was such, uh, you know, I read the script and I said, yes, that's exactly what we need to be. You know, that's exactly the story we need to be telling. And Ian McShane is oh, yeah. one of my top all time favorite actors. So this has been such a joy and such a, you know, I mean, talk about like the thoroughbred out of the gate. It was like, okay, we can't do better than that. So it's been, a, it's been a dream. Yeah, I mean, I, we went back and forth a lot. He really was invested in developing the camera down to how long has this guy been married? One wife, not three wives. We bought a lot of back and forth. What, what color suits is he wearing? What's his look? And he arrived here from England with his custom-made suits shipped in. Um, he arrived with a character fully formed. One of the things I like, it's a little turn, but we have Judge Barth, who's been a, a good judge for us for all these years. And suddenly, she's his defense attorney. Because he's in New York, he's in trouble. I'm going to buy a judge. I'm going to get a judge to take care of this because she'll know people, and they know how to. They know who to put the arm on. They know who who to. They know. I mean, who's susceptible? They have they have hooks. In this episode, it's kind of clear they have a little too much. Uh, too too much. Uh, the DA's office somehow is intimidated by them as well. And we we did another thing. I, I noticed just in the shooting. I don't know how consciously we in the teaser. We see we we don't see the assault. We see the girl, her, her scared eyes as the wolf is closing in on her. And we cut out of the teaser, and then at the end of the uh, top of the fifth act, we we see him assault an undercover cop, and we see what must have happened at the end of that teaser. And it was, and it's much it's much worse than having gone through four acts of this guy's behavior and still wondering if he'll get away with it. But it, we we don't we seldom show. An actual assault, but it, I, I, I was at, uh, we were on set for that scene. It was very disturbing, and it's and it just brings home the reality of what these guys do behind their three thousand dollars suits and their chauffeured SUVs and all of that. Yeah, my last question is: What can we expect in season twenty-one? Who's coming? Who's going? What's happening? All that kind of stuff. That's a question for Warren, isn't it? Uh, yeah. Well, no, uh, we know about me. Yeah, the, this moving by, on by, up. Uh, we are talking to Captain Benson. Uh, That's the little, the the exchange made at the end of the episode. Uh, uh, Chief Do Deputy Chief Dodds is has been exiled to Staten Island. That's partially because he got a pilot that went to series. So we, <laughs> uh, I, I, his character's in Staten Island. He's not gone for good, but he's he's doing traffic enforcement for the next until until that series plays out. I have hopes of bringing a lot of people back. Uh, I don't want to. It's funny because I, I don't want to wallow in the past or celebrate the past to the exclusion of moving forward. So I don't know how many people will be coming back for a, a, a you know a visit a visit to the old saloon. Um, but I, I, I'm looking forward uh, as long as we're 
still kind of moving forward. There's, well, we might see some familiar faces. Yeah, we'll see some, and we might get some new people. Squad Room is short-staffed. The other big spoiler out of the premiere is that Carisi's in the DA's office, where he's now the lowest man on the totem pole with the lousiest cubicle and the lousiest office any DA's ever had. Uh, and so that, that squad room is short-staffed. So it, it, I, I look forward, I'm sure Olivia would like more support. Olivia will have a new boss. That'll be an interesting person to meet because Dodds is in Staten Island. Someone has to take his place. So there's a lot, there's, there's um, something old, something new, and, and borrowed and blue. Blue. Yeah. That's borrowed and blue. <laughs> we better get out before lightning strikes this trailer. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Thank you so much. Yes, as they mentioned, the squad room is a little empty. And one of the reasons is because Sonny Carisi left. Let's talk with actor Peter Scanavino about that. Peter, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, My first question is, did you approach the acting differently than you had in the past, considering all the changes your character had gone through? You know, I got to tell you, there's, you know, it's in the first episode, there's, you know, Chrissy only has uh, a few scenes, but even in those few scenes, they just, they just felt different. Um, I don't know if it was just internalizing it, but I I, I really kind of felt, um, that I had a, that my job had different parameters now and that I had a different boss and there was just the, the feeling. So I was kind of shocked at how, how different it felt. And then also I'd imagine there was a bit of art imitating life in it in that when you're a detective, you're, you know, with the squad all the time and you're with those actors all the time. And then, you know, I go off and I do this thing, I become the new ADA and I'm not part of the squad. And that meant I was not an actor part that was part of the, you know, certain investigations or when they arrest the guy or the perp walk and stuff. And I, I kind of felt, you know, when I was sitting at home, I was like, oh, I miss everybody. You know what I mean? In that way. And I'd imagine that that's how kind of Carisi would feel as well, that there's this element that these people that he's been with for so long, for so many years, and he spends all of his days with them. And now that's not part of his life in the same way. Um, so I just thought that was interesting. How I was feeling at home and then how that would line up with what Creasy was probably feeling. And that was not something you thought about prior to doing the scenes, right? It, no, or, no. Yeah. It was just something that kind of came organically, I guess, you know? Um, and then it's it's weird, you know, how the the dynamic, I think it's a credit to, to the writing as well, but there's a noticeable shift in the dynamic with the the, the squad and, and, and me now. Like I do kind of, I'm not part of the squad anymore. You know, I have this new this new p- position, and, and it's different. It just feels different. It's it's strange. I mean, there's a few significant changes in the first episode because we have you know Olivia being promoted. We have you right. uh, and Dodd leaving, mm-hmm. and uh, but you really had the uh, the most scenes as in your new role. I mean, like you were you were kind of the one who went through a shift that we saw. Right. You know, and right. Um, yeah, because she becomes captain at the end. Yeah. So you're the right. End. You're carrying this kind of like the change of the first episode. And I wanted to talk about um when you had the scene where you have to tell your ex fellow officers to like slow it down, we gotta back up. They're telling you to right. stop. Um did you is that something you felt like was that a did you feel weird doing that? Did you feel um Yeah, well feel, I mean I <sighs> Do you feel like you were letting the team down? Yeah, and I think that's kind of a good distillation of 
this new conflict with with Carisi, where before he would be, I think emotionally he's he's there. Let's go, let's go do it. And as a cop, you can kind of act on emotion a lot of times. But now he has um, the standard of the law that he has to meet, and you kind of have to be clinical about that in a way. So even though I'm sure he wants to go and get Sir Toby, he can't. You know what I mean? Or he has to obey his new boss, which says, slow this down for whatever reasons. He's not privy to the reasons that she wants to slow it down. But it is this thing that going into that scene, he's like, trust me, it's going to work out. You know, and like right out of the gate, didn't work out. I couldn't get the warrant. I, could, I couldn't get the green light for the arrest. You know what I mean? So I think he, he, he does feel that. And I think in that scene, hopefully, you know, I haven't seen it, but the way it comes off is, is that he's very – not conflicted about it, but he does feel the weight of, I said I was going to do this and I couldn't do it. And I know this guy should, is a piece of shit, but it's out of my hands. And because it's out of my hands now, it's out of your hands too. But, and you were hired because of your relationship with them, right? right. So this is something that's, you're going to be pulled in a lot of different, they're going to have expectations of you. Right. And so she's going to have expectations. Right. Well, because there's that scene where she says, you know, I hired you because of your relationship with the SVU. Why shouldn't I fire you? right now. So I think for Creasy, that's a thing where I guess I have to entertain that for her, but I don't think he would ever exploit that relationship for the benefit of his boss or to do something shady or unlawful or because I think that Creasy is a very by, by the book character. Um, so, you know, but that also goes the other way. I don't think Creasy would, um, betray his job or his office to to help maybe the squad at some points. You know what I mean? I, uh, so I think he's going to have this conflict where they're like, come on, Chris, you're one of us. And then Hadid saying, no, you're one of us. And he's getting pulled in, in all these directions and how he's going to try to navigate through this, uh, you know, the expectations of other people on him, which I think they're all going to have uh, quite a few. Do you think that um, – what are your thoughts about like an end game, which, you know – finale last year where where everybody kind of went rogue a bit uh the cops i mean did you did you think that that was um there were no there was no uh ramifications of that they kind of just did this weird thing and then they got away with it um yeah um honestly i think um i don't know how how i feel about that it was all kind of done in montage and yeah. it was like is this a dream sequence i mean <laughs> I found what was interesting about that episode that once you expose Nikki Staines is is lying on the stand and that there's a frame job going, if you were to ask three more follow-up questions, it would have brought down um, Stone. It would have brought down all of us because we'd be implicated because Finn is the guy that got the uh, the drug dealer and I was the one that took the phone and did that. So um, I guess let's just say that I'm – Glad those questions weren't asked <laughs> and we can all just pack know, that one away. Right. And sometimes people just do things and um, I know that's in conflict with what I said that Carisi was a by-the-book character. But sometimes how you view it doesn't necessarily match up with maybe how the character can be written in some episodes. Well, yeah, and I think taking the phone was of, of the things that were going on. Maybe that was the, the, the lesser of the – you know, it wasn't like making it. Yeah, it's still a little shady, though. Yeah, still yeah, a little shady. So. It was. It surprised me, and I rewatched it, um, prepping for this, and mm -hmm. I was kind of like, "Wow, they really, 
Yeah, it, really it, 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 was, it was it was kind of um, glossed over. And also, what's kind of strange about it is that there's no, there was no discussion. You don't see the part where they get convinced, or where the the, the detectives go like. I would never do this, but this is such a serious case. Here's where I am going to compromise um, my 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 standards or my position on this to go rogue and do something that is you know that is illegal and to frame somebody. Um, so you didn't you didn't see that scene. So all of a sudden we're just doing these things, um, but yeah. I mean, I guess we're, we're led to believe Stone uh, once he realized how trouble. Olivia was with Noah when the situation that he did anything he could. Right. Right. And he was so blinded by her that he's now no longer on the show. He's no longer part mm-hmm. of that. Right. Um, and I want to talk about that. What about some of the relationship, you know, relationships with Rollins and relationships that Carisi has with the, you know, and that straddling that line of partners and uh, colleagues and romance and right. You know, well, romance. I mean, who knows? <laughs> Creasy's had many uh, many um, girlfriends that have been written in that never made it to uh, to the actual <laughs> show. I think there's been maybe three. Oh, wow. um, yeah, but um, they got ended up on the cutting room floor. Um, but the 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 thing with Rollins is, I don't I don't know what's there. You know what I mean? I I don't think it's an entirely platonic relationship. Um, and I think a lot of people are in, you know, friendships like this where there's something slightly different about this. It's, it's there, you know what I mean? There seems to be something there. And I think it's also earned because when I first came on the show, Kelly's character really didn't like me at all. I mean, it was obvious and palpable, you know? Um, but we've kind of grown into these, these great friends that kind of rely on each other and can, you know, I think there's a lot of tender moments and open moments that they have with each other where they kind of reveal their true feelings about things or their insecurities and the other one's right there for them. And I think that's a, it's a really good relationship. So are they going to get together? Is there a romance involved? I mean, I, I don't think so, but who knows, you know, I think it's kind of more interesting if it exists in in the gray area, to be honest. Yeah. What did you? What were your thoughts? As um, because you were approaching the uh, the villain, the bad guy, from a different perspective. Now, um, what were your thoughts on Sir Toby and 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 McShane's performance? And just oh man, I, I've been a huge admirer of his for a long, long time. So when he he came on, I mean, I felt like he was one of the biggest heavy hitters we've had on the show since since I've been on. You know, I remember my second episode was like Stacy Keach, and that was kind of like it for me. And then, you know, Ian McShane, and he was just so, so free and 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 good, and he just does the, the like charming villain thing, like like nobody's business. Um, but yeah, I mean, again, seeing him as the villain or how my my character perceives him like do i know that this guy is is bad yes do i believe that he has done these things yes i do but now i'm on this other side where i have these other people that i have to answer to and if i were to be like screw it i'm going rogue right away or i'm gonna tell the uh you know new york daily news that 
Hadid is 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 scuttling this investigation for whatever. Mo- then that's it. Then I'm gone. You know, and that's the the reality of the world that he's living in right now. That he has to kind of be able to um, to 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 please both sides in this in in in, in these these cases. And uh, yeah, because you know it's not it's not a whodunit. It's not a you're not looking for somebody. You're you, right. Everybody knows who it is. From, yeah, from the get go. So it, it's more about how do you prove it you know? right and and uh warren and mariska saying in the last interview that they you know they don't even really know what happens to him at the end you know it's not yeah i mean he probably, he probably lawyers <laughs> up with a lot of money and <laughs> right, gets right, off right, right. you know what i mean um did you have a favorite scene from the, this episode to to film was there anything that do you know what scene was really fun to film was kind of when i go in and uh it's like the uh, surprise, the surprise party, and I come in, and it's like, oh, you know, which was kind of funny because when we when we shot it, we did the coverage of uh, Mariska and Finn and the whole crowd. So you got this big like surprise, and I would come in, and it was like every time it was kind of like <laughs> it was this real reaction, you know. Right. So then they finally they turn around on me for the reaction, and for sound purposes, nobody says anything, so it's just. <laughs> silent and i have to like manufacture this you know hopefully i got one that was passable but uh you know <laughs> kind of had a little more oomph on the other on the other side so you enjoyed the the party in yeah the yeah. party was cool you know because look if i don't know any uh, viewers who will notice this but like we have a lot of the the same extras and a lot of them have, have gotten speaking parts and you know they kind of occupy the same positions in the squad room so those extras were all at that party so these are all people that i hang out with every day <laughs> um you know since i've been on the show like this guy tyree my friend you know saran chris like so they're all there for uh, for the 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 surprise party and it really kind of felt like the surprise party and also I mean, I had, I did have those feelings that I'd imagine that he he would feel as kind of, you know, when Mariska's telling me like Sonny Creasy is going over and he's going to bring his expertise and his charm or whatever, and you know, I had that kind of, I was embarrassed but proud, you know what I mean? Right. Which I, you know, I kind of feel even about taking on this position as as an actor. You know what right. I mean? It's right. It's, you know, it's like that. So it was, it was very similar Good. to kind of to great. real life for me. Well, that's great. I mean, we look forward to seeing where Carisi goes uh, yeah, this season. Me too. And, me too. Uh, <laughs> thanks for sitting down with us. Yeah, of course. On the on the podcast. Now we're going to head into the writers' room and sit with the co-writer and producer of this episode, Peter Blauner. Uh, Peter, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me on, Anthony. Um, we're just thinking about what your inspiration was for writing this episode and what you and Warren talked about in the initial stages. So what I really think is important, and I, I think Warren shares my point of view on this, is, is creating a, a strong villain uh, who's an interesting character who the audience has a strong emotional response to, but who is going to be interesting for us to write about and who will attract a really compelling actor to play that role. So when you're coming up with the idea for Sir Toby, do you, where, at what point does Ian McShane come into your mind? Is it, is it 
early or you have this character fleshed out and then you're... Uh, in the case of the character, uh, Sir Tobias Moore, I think we uh, came up with the idea of a, a character who would be an English media uh, mogul. And, of course, you dream big and you hope that you'll great, get a great actor to play that role. And in this case, we actually landed Ian McShane, who is a tremendous actor with uh, a great history and a great portfolio of, of good guys and bad guys that he's played over the course of his career, and sometimes characters who go back and forth right. across that line. Um, most recently, Al Swearengen in Deadwood. And as we're recording this, the, the show is actually being filmed, and we're getting the chance to see Ian really create that character before our eyes. Uh, Warren and I obviously have uh, crafted lines for him. Uh, there's a dramatic situation, but he's bringing tones and colors to the character yeah. that, that uh, I, I think are uh, going to really make it something special and make this first episode of the 21st season yeah. feel like a very different kind of SBU episode. And I think this is something um, that occasionally fans don't recognize. They go, I hate this character, uh, or, or I just have a, a, a visceral uh, a dislike uh, for uh, the, you know, that face on the screen. Well, it takes real craft and skill to evoke that emotional reaction. Right. And that is a crucial part of the ignition for this show. There are two kinds of stories in, in police procedurals. There's something has happened, and there's something is happening. Something has happened is someone has been killed or assaulted or raped, and we have to find out who did it, and we have to bring that person to justice. Well, that, that's a good story. But if you lean too far into that kind of story, you can fall over backwards. If you know but, what I mean. No, explain, expand on that. So, well, in other words, the, the crime or the action, to the extent that we see it, will occur early on in the show. And then everything else is about getting justice for that. And, and that's fine as far as it goes. There's another kind of story, which is something is happening. The most obvious example is there's a ticking time bomb and we have to find it. If you can come up with a story that has both of those things, then you've got a story that will give you 45 very compelling minutes of television. So if you have a, a villain who, who is uh, like um, Sir Toby Moore, who is more than capable of meeting the challenge uh, from the SBU squad of not only thwarting them, but of being a one-to-one -one threat to them in some way and of, uh, of being able to dismantle the mechanism of justice, well, that's better than somebody cowering in the shadows right. who's afraid of our good guys. I mean, that's, that's not much of a story. I agree with that. Um, Peter Blauner, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast today, taking time away from being upstairs where we're making the first episode. And uh, that's about it for today. Thanks, Anthony. So that's it for the squad room. 
We hope you enjoyed it. We want to hear from you. Please follow us on Instagram at NBCSVU and at Wolf Entertainment. And follow us on Twitter at NBCSVU and at Wolf N. Next week, the amazing Ariel Winter is going to sit down and talk to us. We're going to talk to more people from the cast and crew for episode two. The Squad Room was hosted and produced by me, Anthony Roman, executive produced by Elliot Wolf and Warren Light, and it was brought to you by NBC and Wolf Entertainment. Thank you.